Sandstorm. There's an itch in my throat like fox fur, broombush, cactus whittled to dust, and my son thinks the city has vanished. Wind whipping up a smoke screen, but still he helps me sweep, brings in cushions from the garden, asks me where the buildings have gone, and I point there. Sketch the skyline with my finger, the desert still on my tongue, Habibi. He asks for water, for milk, anything, to change the taste in his mouth, so I say here. Give him orange juice and syrup, sit him on the sofa, say watch, as farm animals dance on screen, fluorescent tulips singing in a meadow. But there's an itch on my scalp like moon dust, feathers floating over the balcony and a hood hood crowned and ancient, pecking at the air. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so happy to be here with you on the Poetry Hood podcast. And I really think the Poetry Hood podcast is just a good conversation with people that I feel I can be myself with in conversation, especially with the knowledge that, yes, this conversation is recorded, but also with the ability to completely disregard that it is. And that's the really the intention of this space. I met you, I don't know what, like a year and a half ago, probably through a common friend, um, which we both love very much, Zaina Hashim the lovely poet. When I read your work, I knew I wanted to dig more in it because your work makes me ask questions. It's not the most transparent work to me. It's, it's work that makes me want to dig deeper. And I'm glad you started with a poem because I want to, I wanted our listeners to hear that, at, at, you know, to start with that before knowing who Rasha is and how she got into poetry and so on. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I, I love your podcast and I love you. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I think I'd love that you tell us a little bit about the poem you shared. Sure. And then you can slowly introduce yourself to our listeners in any way you want. So Sandstorm, I wrote in the middle of a storm. And in Dubai, I feel like we lead very ordered lives. And I think in any urban environment, we, we lead very ordered lives. Things are predictable. And when a sandstorm hits, everything gets thrown out of whack. And I feel like the desert is forced into our daily lives, into our urban lives. And we are made to pause and we're reminded of um, where we are in the world and where we are in the grand scheme of things. Like we are a speck in history. Mm. And um, we think that the architectural language that we have now has existed for a long time and yet so much has come before that. You know, the desert is a remnant of the landscape that existed there before. Mm -hmm. uh, the birds have pre predated human beings and I just feel like it's this force that makes itself known and just, you know, grabs us by the throat and says, listen, this is where you are, this is who you are. And, and I find it really humbling and almost spiritual. And I wanted to capture that in a poem. Um, and I think there are also other layers to that with the child and with the, you know, also the presence of, of um, I guess, with globalization, all these different elements that um, have shaped our cities. And that's ultimately 
was the driving force behind yeah. it. And I know that you have a, a background in oral history, and I always found, you know, the move from oral history to poetry in your journey very interesting. And I wanted to ask you, how much do you think your, you know, background in history, uh, if, you know, inspires your poems or shapes them? And if you can tell our listeners a bit about the journey. So, um, as an oral historian, I interview older people about what life was like here in the Gulf. So, I started that process because there aren't that many tangible remains of history in this region. And I became an oral historian um, actually through my advisor at university. I had spent about a year, like about eight, nine months living in India. I was doing volunteer work and I was amazed at how different life was there. Um, religiously, culturally, there were, you know, there were so many cultural markers that were just so different to life in the Gulf. And I, and I wanted to know more about how um, someone from the Gulf had crossed the Indian Ocean in a ship, mm. landed in, in Mumbai or in Kerala or Karachi, and had witnessed something so different. I mean, I think these days, when if I had to travel to Alaska tomorrow, I would probably be very well prepared for that journey. I would know what to expect. I would, I've seen enough movies, I've read enough books, I've seen photographs that would not really make Alaska surprise me. Mm. And yet back then, people were making these journeys across extremely tumultuous oceans and they must have had such fascinating experiences and mm and emotional and mental, <laughs> like, I don't know, like transformations in that time mm. that we know very little about. Definitely. And I think to imagine that you need, I mean, imagination and also empathy. I totally. think we take things for granted. And when I asked you about Sandstorm, right? Yeah. Immediately you acknowledged how small we are, how nature is very present, how this wasn't here. Yeah. And I think this is what your work does. I mean, from what I've read so far, it's that, I mean, I can call it deconstruction. You, you don't, you immediately break things down and look and go like, what was there before? Yeah. And this is why I think I asked, is this related to your studies in history? Is that what uh, enlightens you to do that? Or is that empathy and drive to deconstruct already there? I think there are two elements of how this may be influenced. Um, I think my interest in history is also very personal. I think I've always been searching for an identity. Mm. And I've grown up in many different countries. And I think I've always wanted to uh, understand a little bit more about where I've come from. And also living abroad and answering a lot of questions. I think after 9-11, the Middle East was put into the... Uh, cultural conversation around the world and I had to answer a lot of questions and I needed to know mm. how to answer certain things and I also I'm very proud of where I come from <laughs> too yeah. and so I wanted to show the world I was like you know it's not so one-dimensional the history of this region is not so one-dimensional so yeah we you know because I never really 
do introductions well in this podcast. I think I'm I'm making peace with that. Maybe you can tell our listeners where you're from. Yeah, so I'm from Kuwait, but I've grown up in many different places. But I've always been very much attached to Kuwait as as home. And so I think throughout my life, whether personally or through my career, I've been trying to reconcile where I fit in that space. And I think I became interested in in the communities that, like specifically, I, I was very interested in the, the, the Kuwaiti community that lived in India. Mm. Part of that was also a bit selfish because I wanted to know what was it like as a diaspora? What was it like being part of a minority in a place? And I think that's always something that I'm curious about. My first experience with poetry was actually through Zena's work. So Zena Hashimbek. Ha- Zena yeah. is, is a brilliant, brilliant poet mm. um, who I encountered when I first moved to Dubai. I didn't really know many people here and I was really eager for for friends, for like-minded people, for my tribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I signed up for everything, for book clubs, cooking classes, like every possible cultural activity that was going on in the city. And the Courtyard Playhouse had this from page to stage uh, workshop. So I signed up for that. And I knew very little about contemporary poetry. My previous experience with poetry was like Wilfred Owen for like GCSE in London. And it did nothing for me. (laughs) I could not relate whatsoever to, to what was being written about, you know, experiences of the First World War. And then Zena just emerged out of this <laughs> uh, incredible space of a time when I felt quite lonely and I felt quite sort of confused and I didn't know where I sort of, I guess, fit in the world. And, and reading contemporary poetry was a revelation and reading her work was a revelation. And I suddenly saw someone writing about cultural things that I could identify with, you know, um, the Arabic language, I guess, spiritual and and social and aspects of our relationships with each other in society. Mm. And I also felt that her work was quite accessible. She manages to be so profound and yet so accessible. I just never had come across writing like that before and she introduced mm-hmm. us to Sharon Olds and other contemporary poets that just blew my mind and that just opened mm. a door for me and how important was it that Zena you know writes about um, so the Arabic language yeah. and you know the region you mentioned you know when we were speaking how important was that i think at the time mm. that was very important to me because I was still very fixated on uh, proving something about this region. You know, I, I it felt very personal to me to say, "Hey, this part of the world is is beaut- gorgeous in its complexity, in its shortcomings." You know, I it's not just. I mean, specifically the the Gulf. I was very defensive. I think at one point mm. where I was like, "No, this is not a place that lacks culture. Mm. It's not a place that lacks history," and. Um, it's all about how you interpret the space. And was it and like an internal fight with you it and was yourself? An internal or were you trying to prove it to to an outsider? I think I was trying to prove it to myself, mm. to, to be completely honest. And then I was also trying to prove it to an outsider. And then finding Zena's work, 
the the cultural references to be on I think the, that was the bait but the real hook of Zena's work for me was how it touched me on an emotional level and how contemporary poetry could really open up something inside you and it it no longer became so much about the cultural references mm-hmm. it became about a way of writing mm-hmm. the way she layered images you know a, a poem is an emotional story it's not like a plot driven story it's not like a narrative mm-hmm. that starts you know with uh, at one point and you know you're you're taken on this very long journey of reading a novel you are engaging with the story of an emotion amazing as you're speaking the the lines of mahmoud darwish that he wrote to edward said are just repeating in my head over and over when he talks about you know when you said like i was defending something i was defensive you know how edward said lived abroad for f- and lived in many different countries and i i don't know how relatable he is to you and we can talk about that but also he's a musician and so there's i feel there's I mean, I wish he's, I, I summoned him right now, <laughs> right? I just summoned him and I felt like it's so beautiful to to see Edward Said in you. I didn't make that connection before now. Uh, but anyways, Mahmoud tells him, uh, he, uh, he says, وَالْهُوِيَّةُ قُلْتْ قَالْ So Edward, دِفَاعٌ عَنِ الدَّاتِ فَهَيْ وَحْدِ So an identity is, you know, um, defending oneself. بعدين بيقول, لكنها في النهاية إبداع صاحبها. So الهوية's identity is at the end of the day uh, born out of the creativity of the yeah. the person who owns it. Yeah. And the whole poem طباق إلى أدوارد سعيد touches upon that, yeah. right? So speaking to the other but then also speaking to the internal. منفن هو العالم الباطني ومنفن هو العالم الخارجي فمن أنت بينهما؟ Uh, so that very specific I am from here there's that like I'm here and I'm from here but I'm also from there that's how the poem starts so there's first of all acknowledgement of the space and of the culture but then the freedom to go into the emotional depth go into the spiritual depth and expanding it that it's no longer about one region but it has to somewhat start because or else it's scary yes right if you do not acknowledge where you're from and and how you feel towards that you're probably the product of someone else's plan for you which is why again edward said is essential here when he talks about orientalism right and i feel like The things you're saying are touching upon that, and I don't know. Completely, I a hundred percent, and I and it's interesting because I do feel like my experience with writing has shifted, perhaps from a place of defense or a place of pr- trying to prove something. I'm like, this is an interesting fact, you know. Mm. <laughs> I want to include it in a poem, and you you, and I found in at some points I would write these pieces, and I have them all saved in my computer, but I haven't, and they're stiff, you know, because I'm trying to say something. And as soon as I let go of that, and I'm like, listen, like my experience now with writing is much more about my like my own self-discovery. What is my internal, my moral core? And I think another reason why I write is to give voice to the self. I think um, growing up in in a, in a close-knit society, I think anywhere in the world, makes you quite self-conscious. 
you know, and I, even living abroad, I was very much aware of the social expectations in Kuwait. And I remember um, I had a friend who was always telling me about this black book that her brother had, where they would write down everything that the girls would be doing, you know. Okay. And <laughs> it was this black, and I don't know if it exists or yeah. it ever existed, but she would always talk about the black book. At the time, I mean, living away from that, you build this narrative in your mind that you are being watched mm. and you're being judged and everybody's assessing and analyzing everything that you are doing. And I think inadvertently, I became a little bit caged. Mm. Um, and no, I mean, my parents never imposed that on me, but I grew up feeling like I had to be very careful about what I said, mm. because anything that I could say would be held against me. Wow. So I, I, I didn't open up very much, even to my best friends, I didn't open up very much about how I was feeling. And I, the one, the moment actually where I really realized that that had spilled over onto my character was years later when um, I was having quite a difficult year. You know, my, my mom was sick, my granddad had past my just given birth to my second child and I felt extremely overwhelmed with life I felt you know worried about everything and there was just so much bubbling I was just nerves covered in skin like every, my entire body was nerves mm -hmm. made, as, made of nerves and um, I was waiting outside the nursery and I noticed that a friend of mine who was also picking up her son just looked a bit distraught and I asked her if she was okay and she said oh I've had all these panic attacks and I'm um, I'm feeling really down and she started talking and she stopped herself mid-sentence and then she said you know you would never understand mm. she said you you know you you make everything look so easy wow and you kind of breeze in every morning and she didn't I don't think she meant it to be cruel I think she meant it she was laughing as she said it she was like you know I'm sorry that I'm burdening you with this clearly these things don't matter to you and I felt like it was the biggest slap in the face <laughs> because I had never felt like such a fraud mm, that wow. I was just pretending that everything was fine and I was going around smiling and I realized that this this maybe this tendency to keep things a little bit caged you know I'm never the person at a dinner party to be the center of attention, to have the, the stories and the conversation. Yeah. And, the, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm holding back. Yeah. And it hurts you, and right? It hurts at the me end because the day, at the end right? of the day, I think intimacy and connection with people to me is supreme, is the most important thing. I think I'm always seeking that. And yet I am building up my own walls. And I think with poetry... I found salvation in that. And I think looking back on my relationship with poetry and why I was drawn to it, it felt like um, a buoy. You know, when you're in the ocean, when you feel anxious or when you feel worried or you feel like you're carrying the weight of your own emotional or mental issues, whatever they are, you're swimming in the sea with others. You don't want to be latching on to the other person that is swimming. You know, you always feel like you're burdening them with your problems, so I'm going to keep it to myself. And the poems almost felt like the space where I could engage with that. And I was reminded of this. Uh, Mary Oliver has this poetry handbook, which I love, and it's like about craft and how to write poems. And <laughs> yeah. But she wrote this amazing passage that has stayed with me. And she says that poetry comes from a position of lack. You're, you don't come to a poem complete and perfect and and resolved 
you come from a position of desire, you come from a position of grief, of loss, of uh, wanting something. And that impulse is resolved through the poem somehow. Yeah. And I think why I find it so comforting is that these writers, you know, wherever they are in the world, they're all dealing with the same elemental issues. And their start, the opening of the poem is from this position of saying, I am flawed in some way. I am, I am down in some way. I, you know, come with me. I mean, even if it's if it's joy, it's even if it's joy, it's it's like probably um, realizing that this joy will is fleeting. Yes. Um, and I think this is the beauty. I mean, this is the beauty of the world in its universality, right? It's the fleeting. It's the ending. It's the it's death. Really. Completely. And. And I think tapping into that is the the key. Yes, uh, it's the core. Uh, but then, in all the different ways and in all the different cultures, a hundred percent. You know, by well, wh- while you were speaking about the cage and the wall, and I, I of course thought of your poem, uh, the Rumor Factory. Yeah. And I think it's it's a good it's a good one since you acknowledge the cage, you acknowledge the fear. I think you translated that into into a poem. So. I think our listeners would be happy to hear it. The rumor factory looks more like a laboratory. Our deeds dissected by faceless bodies, ourselves splayed out on marble countertops, reconfigured, powdered and packaged. I always keep my steps silent, my voice soft, as though I have small creatures sleeping under my clothes, their fur against my skin. I find comfort in unpeopled places, parks at dawn, markets at dusk, museums off-season. Trees could never snatch stories from my lips. Lately, however, I have felt a tautness in my chest, like the tug of claws, loud gasps as I try to fall asleep. Tonight, I invite my demons to the warm glow of this table, stroke them with my pen, fill their lungs with air. When we hold back, this is a question. Why do you think we we do? Why do you think do we hold back? Other than the rumor factory and the fact that you know people are watching or we think they are or society is expecting us to be something. Do you think there are other reasons to totally. hold back? Yes, a hundred percent. I think I think shame is one of them, and I think shame is a very st- sticky thing that is very difficult to define and to locate but I think we can sometimes hesitate to reveal ourselves and to be vulnerable because we are afraid that what we will reveal is shameful Mm. um, and will not be accepted or will not be approved of I you know I think that there's there's an aspect of that I think there's an aspect of feeling that we might get hurt if we open ourselves too much there's also a power play sometimes when you hold back you feel somewhat more in control and more powerful because when you give 
something away, mm. it doesn't belong to you anymore. So you can't control it. Mm. It belongs to somebody else. Definitely. And I think that also I- is what is very liberating about poetry, is you give of yourself mm. and it, be- it belongs to the reader. The reader is not looking at you, the writer. Yeah. Once they open a book or they listen to a poem or they uh, are at a performance, you cease to exist Yeah, it becomes about them too. It becomes about them. Especially if it's a good piece. And a lot of the time, I think now with contemporary, po- there's the eye is very much there and the eye is become, be- becomes very flexible and it becomes very adaptable. But then there's something, fr- like I might write a piece and you might interpret it in a very different way. And you know, with the crits, like I've been lucky enough <laughs> to attend these amazing crits that Farah organizes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not allowed to speak when somebody is assessing your poem. And they might interpret it in a very different way to how you intended it to exist. And I think that in itself is a very important, I think, mental process to go through or or a psychological process that allows you to lose control, you know, or the desire to control. You you accept the fact that, خلاص, okay, it's out of your hands Mm. and it's in somebody else's hands and... Yeah, and I think, I mean, my my original question was, you know, why do you think we hold back, right? And I'm, and I'm trying to answer this question myself, I, and I think it's because we are taught to uh, feel that um, our pains are only ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are somehow we carry the burden of ourselves. We may also tend to not think what we're feeling is a big deal, yeah. right? Yeah. And then a lot of art forms, like poetry, like music, can you know, hold that microscope and say, wait, look at that pain, look at it well. Yeah. Yes, it's yours, yeah. but it echoes so many pains. It's collective. Yeah. And I think this is the most important thing for me. Yeah this realization makes the opening up so much easier yeah. and it's so beautiful yeah. it it really is healing yeah. to hear that you know you have this realization because i feel i i do too more and more and it's not something i knew no it's something i learn as i go as i write uh, that resonance that continuum i i called it the other day i was like it's a continuum and it's also very linked you know it It is very micro in the sense that I might talk about heartbreak mm-hmm. and then we zoom into it. Mm-hmm. But then I can feel like it's so similar to loss of land. Yes. Uh, it's so it, it, it could feel like yeah. Palestine, mm-hmm. this heartbreak I'm going through. And that that I think is the key. It's to see that the universality of the emotion mm-hmm. and how, how it how it exists in so many different contexts yeah that is actually so so true and on the subject of feeling like your pain is your own and that it's small and takes me back to what you were saying also about the idea of identity that this the search for identity becomes so much less about where because you realize that the world faces the same problems and that we are ultimately all human beings with the same pain. And also the relativity of it, of it is really interesting. 
I find that when I get anxious or worried about anything, I can handle the big things. It's not the big things that trip me up. You know, when, when anything, the things that I'm most afraid of, when, when a, a parent is sick or when a child is facing something, you suddenly go into this emergency mode where you are capable of anything and you, you, you can handle it. But I think it's the small things that trip us up often that put us in this spiral of anticipation and you know you don't know what to expect because you're not in that moment yet or you're worried about something and it could be tiny it could be tiny and you don't think it's a big enough mm. issue to to burden with some over someone else and yet you realize that everyone else might be feeling the same way at some point in their lives and also you feel guilty because you think somebody is really suffering across the street yeah why should my pain in this moment or this this heartbreak might seem inconsequential to someone who might be losing a parent or who might be suffering from cancer you know and you might not want to share those experiences maybe at different times and yet poetry deals with the the, 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 the smaller i mean i don't know if that's what you were you were suggesting but it, it made me think of that no i think Definitely, it's connecting the small things to the big things. And I know it, 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 it can sound vague right now, small and big. Unless you spend a lot of time writing poems. Yeah. <laughs> where the, where and that you, you really... <laughs> <laughs> then you start, you start understanding that the story of one person in India, right? When you were doing like the oral history interviews... It's the story of one person. Yes. This person can tell you, but what's my story? Compared, yes. but that, oh my God, this you touched on something. When I was conducting these oral histories, it was really hard finding people to speak to. And the main reason was a lot of people, particularly, sadly, the women, were saying, I don't have anything interesting to say. I have nothing to share. You know, what could I contribute to this conversation? And oh my God. <laughs> Then the conversation begins and your mind opens up, your heart opens up and and you learn so much from this human being and you relate so much to this human being. Mm. You know? yeah. And they realize that they had a lot to share. Definitely. And I think this is what expressing does. I, I know, I mean, this podcast is about usually exploring what poetry is to, to our different guests. It, yeah. it always touches upon that in a way or another but I always say it's when you decide to express, which is one of the most freeing acts. And it could be one of the most genuine yeah. ways of existing and being is to look around and say, oh, my God, there's a story everywhere in my life. And if I only take the time to zoom in and then see how, you know, the interconnectedness of everything and in a world where really you know, we have the nation state, we have these borders and we say this country is this and we like pretend like there's an essence to a country which, you know, we can deconstruct forever and say no, but we were living in India before. Yeah. And uh, in Bilad al-Sham, in the Levant, we were traveling, uh, you know, um, around Greece back and forth. We were sea people. I mean, that you know, that knowledge is so powerful yes. and so scary 
because it breaks the system. <laughs> the system that says it's this country is one body mm -hmm. and this is what it stands for. And I think we do that on a smaller scale. And I think this is why it's so precious. It's precious knowledge. It's scary and it's empowering because you realize you are part of a collective and the collective doesn't stop. Boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we, can, we can circle back to history and studying history and how, you know, it's so important to study it critically. Just like you said, I realized there wasn't a lot of information for example, in the Gulf, and you felt this responsibility to dig, you know, and find stories and document more and, and so on, right? Yeah. So do you have a poem? I think you do, and I, I've, I've heard it called Al-Ard. Yes. I think that's also a good piece to explore. recognize you, naked and nameless, a green path, vital as a vein snaking its way up to Ard al-Yamama. In early spring, desert thistles align themselves with the stars, a trail of crumbs for a camel caravan. Now the stars have faded, this land a plantation of light, I map the sky with my hands, invoke satellites with the flick of a thumb, a blue dot guides me, over concrete hills, concrete fields, highways, always humming. was part of a workshop we were asked to find a coastal map and write a poem addressing the map mm. and looking at this landscape at the time and how bare it was it looked like naked flesh like at first I was looking at it as as something that was being cradled something that you know it was very bodily <laughs> in my first iterations of the poem and then it started to um, to move into something about uh, our connection to the landscape. You know, I was always fascinated by how our ancestors and how people that lived on this land had to, to know it so well <laughs> in order to survive and to exist. And they, they, they knew the stars, they could read the stars, they could read the landscape, they, could, they had very few markers to, to get them from A to B. And how civilization and progress and urbanization has has not necessarily destroyed that but it's it's we've adapted to it now now we're looking beyond we're looking at the satellites we're still reading the landscape we're still reading the world <laughs> yeah. but in a very different way through technology through through you know where our scope of life our our, our periphery has expanded uh, where it now includes the unit you know the the solar system and <laughs> yeah and that map you're talking about um is a map of which region exactly? Of the w it's a map of the world, of the whole but world. I looked at the section that was this, the Arabian Peninsula, and I was looking at here, this region. Mm. And do you feel that this is where you belong? Like, you know, since we spoke about expansion and being part of, and, you know, someone who lived in many countries, someone who, 
who feels like they have an expansive identity. Yes. Do, where do you feel you belong? Um, I think I belong in two places. I think the one, you know, home for me because we've moved around is my, you know, my grandparents' house in Kuwait feels like home because that's something that has stayed and my cousins and my, you know, this world that I think we created as kids that was fictional and non-fictional, you know, our, our games and our, our, our secret language. <laughs> that to me feels like home. Maybe not necessarily that place, space anymore, but I think those relationships that I've had since childhood, you know, that feel familiar to me is very much like home. But then there's another aspect that has let go of this desperation to find myself, where do I belong, you know, and going back to what Edward Said said, uh, I, I, and maybe through writing poetry, I realized like I am a citizen of the world, it's as cheesy as it sounds. I, I feel so liberated in that, you know, I'm very much connected to this, to this land, to this place, because I've familiarized myself. I'm very proud of uh, how heritage has, has perhaps informed cultural dynamics that have its pitfalls when going back to this idea of you know <laughs> the monetary so when but you, also when i if you summon ancestry or if you imagine yourself in this i mean it's an imagine it's an imagined russia in another time yeah what do you see do you see yourself that's such a good question as a, a bedouin or do you see yourself Uh, in a forest what do you see just when you i think it's important because yeah. we know that we when you deconstruct you 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 imagine yeah or when you read about i don't know um, the indigenous peoples of yeah. uh, certain continents you go like wow i think i fit in this nature and because we are very removed from nature in our cities most of the time so maybe if i rephrase the question i can say what nature do you think you belong to That's an amazing question. And I'm curious about your answer too. So, but, uh, <laughs> um, whenever I've traveled, there have been places in the world where I have felt very much at home. Uh, two of those places have been um, Brazil and India. And I think in Brazil, which was surprising, I never imagined, you know, I'm. I think culturally, I'm not Brazilian <laughs> in culture. I am too reserved. I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not. But I think my innate <clears throat> being is very much like the Brazilian culture. When I went, I went there for my honeymoon with my husband. And I had never felt so connected to a place. We weren't even there for a long time. But I think it was this, I've never liked anything too manicured. I like wildness in the landscape, in people. I like that sort of raw openness. I I um I just felt like there was a way that people carried themselves in Brazil. And we were we were you know a little bit away from the beach area like it was it didn't feel uh, and we, we went to a fishing village I think my husband was, he was like, you organized the trip. But then we went to this fishing village that that basically this this hotel that had like six rooms and there was no air conditioning. There were like mosquito nets. And, you know, we all would eat 
whatever the fishermen would catch that day and we'd all eat together on this very mosquito ridden table with like candles and and I just felt so at peace with myself and with the world and just being away from anything that was too constricted and and I think I felt that way in India as well I lived in a village you know the the animals were everywhere um, I lived with a, f a family for about six months at the time and then I moved away and lived in a house with a, another person that was working in the NGO and I mean you there was a hole in the ground for the toilet we would burn our rubbish mm. and I lived like this for nine months wow and I had like a bucket as a bath like the shower was just a bucket it was the same bucket that the family used to clean their clothes I don't think I could do that now but at the time it just it felt so natural to me to just be in that very elemental state and I think for me that is what where I feel most at home is where you know you're just you're hu you're just you yeah there's no there are no labels there's no uh, yeah I, I don't know I, I was about to say it's less complicated but I love complication <laughs> and but it's the right complication right yeah. it's the, f the but I think this is a very natural longing yeah when you you know live in towers or big yeah. buildings or you know you have highways everywhere you have cars everywhere I think I find it strange when we don't long for that and I also think writing and, and connecting to that creative outlet in my life is, is helping me connect and go back. And I, again, summoning, I keep use the, using the word, I summon something that I don't really have. It's somewhat imagined. It's not necessarily real. It, it sometimes feels like fantasy. But I also know that um, when I went to Brazil, I felt very similar things. And um, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm Brazilian on paper. Oh, I know, I didn't. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so my dad had, had been living there for 12 years and I had, I used to go every year and, and I used to feel something, the wilderness. And then, you know, when I learned about the history of the country, you know, how, you know, terrifyingly huge the yeah. nature, the forests are and, and how green, I've never seen a green, you know, so this, like, when you feel like nature is overwhelming and it's so much in the city, you know, maybe much more than the sandstorm we started with, like, it's in your face, you, you, you immediately go, like, what are we doing? What are, what are, what are we humans doing, really? What is our project? I, I'm losing touch. I'm, I don't get it anymore. Yeah. And I think this question is valid uh, and it's important. And I felt similarly in Greece. And actually, Jamil and I traveled together to Greece and also with the knowledge that wow this is a similar nature to to Palestine and to Bilad al-Sham it's close I heard things here and there uh, about the Palestinians moving around the Phoenicians and you know I have very loose uh, historical knowledge but it was enough for me to feel things and to connect dots in the nature in the skin tones uh, you know, the olive oil, the sage, Miramiye. I, I felt things. This home I long for, this history I long for. And it is, 
you know, to me, it is Bilad al-Sham. Yeah. It is Bilad al-Sham. It's not necessarily Arab. I feel it's Bilad al-Sham, you know. And then I understand where does the Arab come from, yeah. you know, and I start connecting dots. But that process is, is not the most evident because we definitely, that's not how we're taught to think. And this is where, you know, I feel my epiphanies have been happening here. Uh, in that walking poem, that poem that, that, that is not necessarily on the page, it's not necessarily written, it's that <sighs> that big sigh of relief that connects so many things together, you know? So, yeah. And that recognition. Yeah, definitely. So, I wanted you to share um, a poem that you feel so it's I, I I leave the choice to you whether it's yours or someone else's poem that you feel does that work whatever that means right we've, we've spoken about so many things but but a poem that you feel you know uncages mm. unblocks mm. Uh, related or not to identity and to where we're from it so I just I'll leave it up to you to choose one now Okay, so I'm going to read this beautiful poem, poem by Zena Hashimbek because I think it touches on some of the topics that we talked about. Um, and it's called Broken Ghazal, Speak Arabic. I write in English the way I roam foreign cities, full of streetlight and betrayal, until I find a coffee shop that speaks Arabic. If we were born in the cities we long for love, Paris, Prague, New York, what languages would they have taught us to speak? Arabic says the best singers are the peddlers, and the Quran, would it still lift us if it didn't speak Arabic? Sure, there is always Lenin, but I wonder if we would have found Sheikh Imam who reminds us the wound is awake and love speaks Arabic who reminds us no one can colonize a river and the tyrant is always afraid of the poet, especially if she speaks Arabic. They say people who grow up in two languages have stronger memories and they can hear the birds on the balconies speak Arabic and they know a mountain of orange life jackets looks like spring though it won't revive the dead, who speak Arabic but no longer need a visa or translation. And you, Zena, what else can you do but whisper to these broken lines, speak, speak Arabic. I mean, this is uncaging by definition to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's commenting on colonization, on history, on the language, on identity, on, you know, and then the cultural reference of Sheikh Imam and Lenin. And I mean, I think this is what, you know, I'd like most of us to be doing. Mm. It's to be connecting dots and not falling into the trap of, 
cultural imperialism. What is spreading now is the only knowledge you have. No. Um, break it down. Break it down and and understand the power plays and be critical. Yeah. And it's difficult work. It's really difficult work. And this also kind of connects me to the previous conversation we were having about why do you think people don't open up? Because it's difficult work. It is. Um, and it will require you to break mm-hmm. so many set ideas and rules and thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, <gasps> what? What am I left with? What structure am I going to use? What moral code? And what am I... Completely. And I think that's it. It's the moral code. And I think ev- we have... Each of us have our own moral code that resonates and it's informed by our spiritual beliefs it's informed by our upbringing by our environment and then there is the noise Mm. and i think i actually think anxiety stems Mm. from this muddle of the noise with the innate belief of what is good what is good because there are sometimes there are conflicting ideas on what is good there's no pure essence of what is right and wrong there are some basic things on how we treat each other as human beings we respect each other you you honor your commitments to other people you know there there are basic violations that i think are universally accepted as wrong mm-hmm. and universally accepted as right but then there's a gray area definitely and i think there is this muddling that is very difficult to navigate and difficult to 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 figure out like you know is this is this right why is it right? What is good? And it takes it back to all those questions. Like of Aristotle, course. you know. I have a maybe a, a difficult question that I wouldn't want to be asked. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Ever. <laughs> uh, but we can try to answer it together. Okay. I haven't used any passes yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need to go. I have kids. <laughs> um, mm. So. This is the question I never want to be asked, but I'm going to do it. But we can, we can go at it together. Do you think poetry is enough? Two. So there's a two, but these are, again, questions I usually maybe ask, but then I go like, no, but it's deeper than that. Yeah. It's, not, it's not about that. But I think they're important sometimes. They may be similar to the noise, by the way, yeah. but in a different way. But, I mean, what is good is maybe linked to, you know, um, kindness, social justice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the word social, the term social justice is nice, mm-hmm. is, is a good one. It's a good compass to say, you know, who's in an unjust situation in the world. And, and I think that's a good question. And you can ask that in your household and then you can ask it in your town and then in your city. And then, I mean, that's one of the questions I ask myself. It doesn't stop, right? If you're socially just about something, you can't just pick and choose. You you start to to ask similar questions to understand situations. So maybe the better question is how does writing fit in that? You know, and I think it's relevant. I've never asked it before, but I think it's relevant because you are someone who you know looks at um, I mean who who studied history, but who also looks and says. But wait, like, this is not expressed in a, in a way that I find fair. Or yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely disregarding these people or that, you know, this group of people. And 
you know, and you said like Kuwaitis were a minority. Like what is all these things? What is a minority? What does that mean? What does that imply? So how do you feel poetry can reconcile? Can you know, you can that. reconcile that and your place in the world. Yes. Well, I think poetry is always has often been a vehicle of expression for, for people that have been marginalized in some way or have not found that their voice is represented in the mainstream. And it's interesting to consider this question in a world of social media because suddenly every, you know, I, I was about to say that poetry is a very personal thing. It's very much like an individual is creating this piece of work. It's, it's often not a collaboration. It's a very personal thing, mm. and it's honoring the the experience and the voice of a singular person, and that in itself can perhaps rep you know collectively when lots of those voices are present in the world, we uh, have access to them. But I don't no I don't think it's enough because I don't think everyone can articulate themselves in that way. I think for some people that, that are trying to find a voice but are find that poetry comes naturally to them, mm. that works. And I was thinking a lot about this also where music fits fits into this. And, and you know, w what are the, the cultural mediums that are used to represent not just marginalized voices but all voices? Mm. And, and especially in this day and age where everyone, is, everyone has access to a platform in a way that we didn't have in the past, for better or worse. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, and, you know, what? what is the responsibility of these voices? Wh how do we engage with them? What do they do mm. in the grand scheme of things? And that being either in transforming, in connecting, you know, th there, there are many ways in which a poem can be, can affect things. On a, on a very minute level, it yeah. can, you know, I mean, the my yeah. poem, right? Yes. Um, I think like the, the tyrant's fear yeah. of the poet. Yes. I mean, we know this. And I mean, Mahmoud Darwish also says, um, We know this, mm -hmm. but how much do we know it? And how well do we know it? And, um, and how true is it? <laughs> you I know? think true is the right word because. Yeah. I I think I find poetry very true, even though it's masked behind a lot of like metaphor and imagery, mm -hmm. and in a way, it's <laughs> not true at all. Um, and there is a lot of fiction behind it, but the impulse is often true. It's driven by something mm. that is very true, and that I think is what is ultimately communicated by the poem. It's not the detail or the fact. It, that's that's the transport, but the actual thing that is being transported is the emotional impulse, mm. and I think that is very powerful. I mean, you know, you have uh, the inauguration, you know, it opens with a poem. There is, there is some th poems are read at starting points. Mm. You know, they're, they're used to, uh, in weddings or in, f you know, I don't know. I guess that's a very I American know. thing, but, you know, but, <laughs> but, but that but scares me. This feels stale. This it does feel stale. This it does feel stale. Me. And I want to go to what you created a few weeks ago. Mm. And we talked about this at one point about how poetry sometimes is given this pedestal, and it's you know that that doesn't feel like it's always the most natural way. Just to let you know, Farah created this amazing this amazing <laughs> event of where where we were four 
writer is sitting sitting down mostly mm-hmm. in a circle with others and there was a musician and the poems were in dialogue with each other and everybody pulled out a poem relating to the previous person's piece and f- to me that was probably my favorite poetic experience mm. and i think because it was a conversation and i don't know how that could but sp- i don't know i'm deviating a bit no 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 you're not no i think it's linked to what we were saying about you know so because poetry is words right it's words it's language yes. and a lot of things are right um yeah. the uh, like political decisions speeches yeah. um i mean <laughs> the education system it's it's the same medium right that that's me of course deconstructing and stating obvious things but it's important to say we're using words we're using language so how effective are they this was the initial question right, right? Okay. how are they in, in 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 like how do they contribute to uh, the world to social justice and and so on and again it's a huge question yeah. we've been answering it yeah. all throughout the episode because it is a more vulnerable, more personal, mm-hmm. and we spoke about summoning and acknowledging and breaking down walls, which is something a lot of other speeches and you know hidden agenda texts will yeah. never do. Yes. Never. They will tell you this is what it is, this is what happened in 1914, this is what happened it's in... It's the story. Mm-hmm. I, was re- I was reading or listening, I think it might have been on a TED talk, but somebody was saying when you read a story, there is something psychological that happens in your brain and they analyzed the effect on the brain of reading a story. And actually, like if you are reading a story about, you know, walking through a field of like jasmine flowers and you're smelling the flowers, your your olfactory part of the brain is lit up. So I think words in store in a story format, not not yeah, 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 yeah. is does something to your to your brain mm. that gives creates empathy and i think that that started th- 100,000 years ago when people started to communicate yeah. in stories and they were initially warnings for society mm. the, when people the cavemen the cave women were in these communities and they were mm. telling each other stories they were there to as survival tools you know don't go to that place you'll fall in a ditch or you'll you know mm. and and so stories were passed down mm. to to prepare us and I think our brains again I think this was a TED talk <laughs> but our brains have evolved to accept stories in that way Mm-mm-mm. through the oral tradition and so when we listen to a story we become more empathetic and I think that we consume many stories now through movies through um, you know even in advertising you know there are many ways we where we digest stories mm-hmm. and I think in a way that has conditioned us to become more empathetic because we can associate a little bit more i wonder though Mm. what poetry is able to do that other mediums don't manage to do or if it's just the story how does a story can it transform people into action more than a speech say or more than a set of facts like you know you watch the news and you're like oh my god that is awful uh those statistics are terrible but they're not necessarily going to motivate you to act or something you know while a story might i think that's where the power of storytelling is because our brains are open to them Mm. 
the platforms, it's interesting to consider how the platforms have changed. You know, like, um, how do you experience a piece of writing on social media versus at a poetry reading in a big stadium versus in your bedroom at night holding yes. a book or you're driving in the car listening to a poem yeah. on I a podcast? To me, there's the... Um, am I consuming a piece is it coming to me like a product Packet, yeah like a you know like yes. just or am i doing the work i'm taking it i'm actually you know feeling it taking it believing in it in the intention i think this is where i think the platform whatever it is doesn't matter as much as the intentionality of me as a reader or as a receiver yeah of that and i think this is what our worlds are you know this is where it hurts the most because a lot of people do jobs that they hate mm -hmm. and audrey lord actually says this is one of the biggest problems of our you know modern worlds yeah is that we are we think it's okay we are normalizing hating our jobs you know because that's what there is and we're going with it so we are often distracted mm -hmm. distressed and we cannot sit and enjoy something fully and embody it yeah and i think this is the awareness that is very relevant to me now anything that makes me feel like i want to be living yeah living in all its meaning is what I want poetry to do, what I want music to do, what I want food to do, mm -hmm. everything to do mm -hmm. is to make me live more, to feel pain more, to feel everything, live. Yeah. And it's like, you know, watching any documentary, you know, about, you know, um, like I, I watched something about Yarmouk uh, at Real Palestine the other day called, it's a film called Little Palestine about the Yarmouk refugee camp in Syria during the, the siege. So Bashar Assad's siege on El Yarmouk. So they, they were starving. There was actual starvation. And it was such a painful film to watch. But people celebrated in many moments of the film. It was a documentary. There was this guy, the director, just had a little camera and was just filming around. So it's very raw footage. Yeah. And yes, it was horrible and, and painful. And it made me angry. But one of the things I saw and like a lot of people said in the film is we have joy. Mm. You will never, ever take away joy. Yeah. Wow. Fuck. Like it's amazing. Yeah. And I think this is what I want anything to do. So I want poetry to contribute to that life, whatever that means. And it's very relative. And what we all know when we are actually having fun, when we're actually enjoying. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us go to, you know, you know, quote unquote, like have fun and we find ourselves in this space and we're not, we're not okay. We're not, we're a bit miserable, you know, at a club and it feels weird or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever the, the concept of fun is. And we know when we're actually feeling it in our whole bodies. And I, I think it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, jobs and, and a lot of life becomes automatic and then people go with emotions, they do what they think they need to do, and, or it's a habit. Um, but what poetry does is it makes you stop 
and mm. pause and take stock of what is around you. It makes you observe. And you're like, oh my God, that's such, that's so true, that aha moment. Mm. I live for that aha moment. When I read a poem, I'm waiting for that aha moment where you, you are enlightened. And you're like, this is, this is so true about life, whether it becomes like a reflection of, of, of what is actually meaningful in the world or the, the beauty or the joy or the sorrow or the grief, uh, the longing, the desire, the, all of that. Mm. And you take stock of your life and you, you, know, you, you sit with it. And I mean, going again back to the topic of anxiety, we're living in a world where everything is meant to numb every emotion. Mm. And we are afraid of feeling every emotion. You know, not everyone would make the choice to go see the, the documentary that you went to see because they know they're going to get hurt. Yeah. You know, so I feel like something a little different, which is fine. Sometimes, you know, yeah, entertainment yeah, is there to also for escapism. Yeah, yeah. It's there for an, an experience. When... We need to, I think, learn, and I think we probably do over time, depending on what your priorities are in life. If you want to be a, a conscious consumer of culture, mm. how do you do that in a way that is fulfilling? You know, you, know, you want to be entertained for pleasure, for joy, for whatever reason. You also want to feel things. Mm. You want to, to, to relate to someone who might be suffering in the way that you are. You know, you might see a piece, a movie about heartbreak and you, you can connect with it. You read a poem about death, you, you connect to it and you feel alive. And I think a healthy state of mind is one that it just accepts, is, is not afraid of what life throws at them. Because life is not all happy. Life is not all, you know, joyful and it's not all consistent. And the sooner we accept that, and I, tr and I think about this with raising my kids. And you like, know what's funny? Wait, we'll, we'll, we'll go to raising kids. But when you spoke about Brazil, yeah. you're like, I don't know, maybe I'm reserved. <laughs> and I'm like, you reserved <laughs> with all this acknowledgement? That's, the, that's <laughs> not reserved. I mean, shy and can't dance so much and, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't party. <laughs> does not mean reserved. Uh, True. That's another. Like, <laughs> a, yeah. No, completely. And yeah. then I think, and I think you, as you grow, you 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 embrace life for all that it has to offer, in its entirety. And I think m that's my purpose, I guess, in life is just taking it by the hand. And and I think and it's, it's frightening. It's scary. I you know I I freak out a lot. But without that, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, I know you, you, we spoke briefly before, not during the episode, um, about, you know, anxiety, mental health, yeah. and how poetry somewhat serves as a healer. Yeah. It heals yeah. certain things. And we've touched upon that in our previous episode with uh, Samar Abdel Jabir. But do you feel you have a poem you could share that... Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. That somehow yeah. touches upon this. Um. before the wash for the mushrooms on my spoon scatter of spores 
butter down the drain. The wash before the wash for the milk in her cup, lipstick on the rim. The wash before the wash for the cells in her breasts, the bones I cannot reach, cannot scrape clean. The wash before the wash for the machine in my head, the voice ringing rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. something about your kids and i interrupted you like a couple yeah, of seconds I, I, you know like how much do you shelter your kids from pain mm. and i find like when i'm reading a bedtime story uh, i think it was last week or something and i was reading a story and it was about a child that had lost its parents and mm. and i realized a lot of the stories that we were read, read as kids or read it as kids are quite kind of frightening in a way that you know there might be orphans or they might be mm. uh in a situation like a war ravaged situation or there and and you want to protect your kids from that so i found myself lowering my voice mm. and then my youngest who has a question for everything uh was like what are you saying say it louder why did you lower your voice <laughs> and and i realized i was like oh i don't want them to think that there might be a life without us yeah you know what would it do to them okay maybe because when i was a child it would keep me up at night the idea that that perhaps i would not have my parents maybe adults cushion more than children do really yeah i think we cushion yeah we're the cushioners we're the ones that have a lot of stories about you know what happens after death and and where we think people went and it's it's really all us yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's mainly us and then it's also how much you can handle like sometimes when i see a, a kid that is upset about something i try not to look at what they're going through through my eyes like oh it's nothing you mm. know like forget about it it's not a big deal like somebody said this to me uh, you know they'll be thinking about it for you know and one of my kids is a bit like me he holds on to things for a long time his brother la- mm. <laughs> the opposite <sighs> um and and i try not to make him feel like it's nothing because when you get when you feel deva- like you feel like if something is is being devalued or it's like halas get over it yeah. there's nothing more painful than that when you're s- going through something and and they're like oh this happened to me and it was yeah. worse you're talking to a friend and you're like ah i'm uh, this is really bad you know i, I feel yeah, awful yeah. about that oh for god's sake yeah yeah that's horrible you know it's horrible yeah because we have to go through it yeah i mean we can when we f- go through it we might look at it and say oh it was actually not that bad but that's a very different process than someone looking while you're in pain someone looks at you and says Khalsini. Yeah, exactly. You know? Or stop crying. Stop crying. It's not worth it. I do it sometimes to my kids. I'm like, stop it. Stop crying. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Cry, cry, cry it let it out. And as adults, we need to do this too. Like, you go through something difficult, you don't have to escape it. You know, yeah, it's yeah, you yeah, face it. I don't do this all the time, but I want to. Yeah. I just get worried, you know. <laughs> but th- that worry is part of the process and just accepting that, okay, this is tough. I have to face it. 
mm. or you or you procrastinate or you like put something aside because you don't want to face it mm. or you know all of that definitely. comes with this feeling that okay i can get away from this mm. yeah definitely well i think this conversation adds life to life like oh. this is what it is <laughs> to well, me it definitely adds for me so yeah but it's Thank it's you. it's exactly why i wanted us to be together here and it's it's giving me this desire to to read a poem that celebrates mm. living yes. in all its pain and i thought of um i don't know if you know this one it's called relax by ellen bass no so i might i, I do might love read ellen it. bass though relax ellen bass Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really like, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every life socket she passes, you'll come home to find your son has emptied the refrigerator dragged it to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup. Drug money. There is a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down. But there's also a tiger below. And two mice, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up, down at the mice. She looks up, down, at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat, slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is, how the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. <laughs> I love that one so much. And I think it's, it's all about the strawberry. It is. It's the strawberry. And it's like, find your strawberry. Just find your fucking strawberry. And it will just keep giving you life. It will keep giving you life, keep moving you forward. No matter the the wreckage, right? That's a yeah, that's the Sarah Kay's uh, <laughs> yeah. that's Sarah Kay's uh, book, the collection title. Okay, listeners, thank you for being with us on the Poetry Hood podcast um, and for joining me and Rachel Duesan in this conversation. Uh, stay tuned; we'll be having more episodes with lovely writers and thinkers and thinkers from around uh, the region. If you want to find us, we are very often hanging out at Cave with a K in Al Sarkal Avenue in Dubai, and we have uh, crit sessions uh, where poets and writers join 
to share feedback, honest feedback usually, about writing. Uh, so we have one every month. So you can go to Cave's uh, website and find us there. Thank you to Jamil Adas, who's always with us, setting up, making sure, um, you know, to remove the funny things we say on our episodes sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Thank you very much. <laughs>